So if you want to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, uh, if you missed us last week, uh, feel free. You can always keep up on the podcast uh, anytime. There's a uh, Grace Road Church podcast on iTunes. If you download our app, Grace Road, the Grace Road Church app, then you can use that to keep up on the messages as well. Uh, but we're in our second week now in this book of Ecclesiastes, and it's a hard book to hear. Solomon says some things that are hard for us to listen to, and they're, they're uncomfortable because he blows up a lot of our hopes and dreams. But he does it to serve us. He says what he says, not to leave us depressed, but to keep us from wasting our lives chasing all the things that he chased to find satisfaction. He does all this to remind us that there is no ultimate satisfaction out there. Uh, When I was a kid, about 10 years old, we had this dog named Abby. And Abby was a black lab and was really friendly to our family, but was not friendly to anybody else. Uh, when, when people would come over, and it was from the time that we got her, when people would come over to the house, Abby would run under the kitchen table and growl, and it was that intense growl where you feel like if you got too close, this dog's going to explode and bite me. And then Abby got to where she was biting people. And so she was great for us, and I loved my dog, but we couldn't keep that dog. And my, my mom knew that. And so she brought Abby into the SPCA, and, um, I mean, that's the place where people can go and they can, can buy a dog. And if the dogs stay there too long, then they put those dogs down. But nobody really goes in there uh, looking for a bitey dog. You know, nobody, that's not what they're in the market for. And so Abby went in to the SPCA, spent a few weeks there, and then Abby was no more because of her temperament. Which is sad, but what's even sadder is that my mom didn't have the heart to tell me that that's what happened to Abby. Um, because she knew that I loved my dog, and so she didn't want to be the one who was responsible for killing the dog. And so she, she didn't tell me that she brought Abby into the SPCA to have her put down. And so I went out looking for Abby. And a 10-year-old kid walking up and down the street, Orchard Hill in Orchard Park, New York, uh, crying out, Abby, Abby. And, and it was day after day, and I would come home, and my mom, she, she was trying to say things like, hey, listen, you know, Sometimes dogs just find farms, and they're, they're happy there, and, and you know, that's where they live, and everything's great. Don't feel like you've got to find her. I mean, we want what's best for, for Abby, don't we? Well, no. And so I was going out day after day, searching and looking for Abby, and it wasn't until I was an adult that I learned what had really happened to Abby. I always thought Abby had run away, and that I failed in my quest to find her. And so I was having a conversation not too many years ago with my mom, where it was like, you know, that information would have been useful um, when I was walking up and down the street in the winter looking for a dog that was dead. <laughs> and, and so sometimes it's, it's good to hear the hard thing to spare ourselves the trouble of, of wasting years and wasting effort. And this, that's the service that Solomon gives us here. He serves us not by telling us something we want to hear, because we want to hear that real life and hope and peace and meaning is to be found out there. We want to feel like we're justified in our quest to look for it. But Solomon goes out and he samples everything the world has to offer, and he comes back with a hard thing to hear, but if we hear it, it changes our life for the better. He comes back and he says, it's all meaningless. It's all chasing after the wind. What you are after is not out there. Which we don't want to hear, but if we hear it and believe it, then it keeps us from wasting years like Solomon did looking for something that's just not there. Now, I know some of you may be here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're a little bit skeptical. You consider yourself a seeker. You're open to this Christianity thing, but you're exploring the world to see what it has to offer, to find that place where you can find real life and meaning and satisfaction, and you haven't yet committed to Christ. Listen, I think it would be better 
if you turned to Christ and committed to him now and, and spared yourself some of the pain that will come from looking for what you're looking for where it's not to be found. But I would say that if you're committed to that quest and if you're going to keep searching the entire world looking for life and peace and meaning and trying to find it apart from Christ, do it like Solomon did. Solomon did it with eyes wide open. He asked lots of real hard questions. He probed and he looked and he didn't allow himself to ignore what his conscience was saying, what his heart was saying, as he went out and tested everything that the world had to offer and came back and found that it was empty. He didn't just settle for a temporary pleasure that he knew didn't cut it for him. He asked the hard questions and was able to make a right verdict and say, it's not out there. So if you're going to search, search. But search with eyes wide open and look like Solomon did where you're just saying, I'm going to really ask and see if this cuts it for me. Because I think if you tell the truth, you can look under every rock in the world and you'll never find that thing that finally satisfies. Look at his report. Ecclesiastes 1.14, he says, I have seen everything, everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So he says, I went out to figure out the world. I went to figure out where I'll find that one thing that's worth living for. And he said, all I found was sorrow. And this is why Herman Melville read this book. And he said, this is the truest of all books. Because we know that anywhere we go, all the things that we think hold out hope for us, they all fail to satisfy. I mean, sometimes the the thing that holds out hope for us is a hero. We find this Christian hero who seems to really have Christianity figured out. It seems like they're walking with Jesus. They seem so strong, and we have a lot to learn from them, and we learn a lot from them. And then we get close, and the closer we get, inevitably, the more disappointed we are. And it's not that they're not real Christians. It's not that God hasn't taken real ground in their lives and changed them and made them different. But as we get closer to anybody, we see the sins. We see the weaknesses. We see the failings. And all of those people that we hold out as heroes, when we get close to them, inevitably we end up disappointed. And so sometimes it would be easier just not to get close because we don't want to know. Solomon says, with much knowledge comes much sorrow. Same is true of churches. You start going to a church and you seem so impressed because these people are so nice to you. They seem so authentic. They seem so real. They they seem so willing to receive you. And you hear the gospel and you feel like, yes, this is the message I've been hungry for. I'm, I'm glad for this. And then you get closer and closer to the people and you start to see the sins and the failings and the weaknesses in the church. You start to see the things that we should be doing that we're not doing, the things that we're doing that we shouldn't be wasting our time on. And it's easy to be so just disillusioned and disgruntled and upset because this thing that held out so much hope just doesn't satisfy and it's never enough. Really, all of life, we always have that next thing that we can think of, that we think, when I have that thing, when I have attained it, when I've gotten something, when I've gotten over a life hurdle, when I finally get there, that's when I'll have peace and satisfaction. And we keep getting there, we keep getting to the top of those mountains, and we find that we haven't arrived. We just see more mountains in front of us. And so the more we really know how the world works, the more sorrow that there is, and the darker things become. So Solomon says, I checked it all out, and I just can't find what I'm looking for out there. And in the next chapter, we're going to see him go on a quest to experience every pleasure that the world has to offer 
so that he can report back to us and let us know if what we're looking for is out there. You uh, 2 and Johnny Cash did a song together called The Wanderer, and the lyrics are this. I, I went out there in search of experience, to taste and to touch, and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. Yeah, I left with nothing but the thought that you'd be there too. I'm looking for you. And that was Solomon's experience too. In these next bunch of verses, we're going to see him go out and experience as much as a man can before he actually turns back to God so that he can make a report to us and let us know if what we're after can be found out there. So chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So he goes out and he says, what is good in the world? And the first thing he sees that's good out there that holds the promise of satisfaction is laughter, is comedy. He says, I'm going to try that out. And I like good comedians. I mean, I'm a big Brian Regan fan. I could watch Brian Regan comedy all day long. Um, we like him so much, our church is actually bringing him here December 7th. Um, Okay, we're not, but the auditorium theater is. And so uh, we'll just take credit for all they do. Um, my kids are going to grow up thinking we put on the best plays here. You know, our Christmas play this year, by the way, we're having the Russian ballet come in and do the Nutcracker. So it'll be awesome. We, we've got a lot going on downstairs in the other auditorium. But um, So a couple of years ago, maybe it was last year, uh, Debbie and I went to see Brian Regan down in the auditorium theater, and he was so funny. We were laughing so hard, tears streaming down our face. We woke up the next morning, and our faces were sore from laughing so hard at his jokes. It's mostly, I think, everything I remember is totally clean comedy. And you don't recognize how out of shape your face is until you sit through Brian Regan for a couple hours and just laugh. And it's a good time. We're not against laughter. But Solomon took that to the extreme. He, he brought the comedians in. He experienced laughter. He laughed at everything he could laugh at. And he found that the effects wore out. And the same is true. I could just keep watching YouTube video after YouTube video of Brian Regan telling jokes, but after the 500th time of hearing that joke, it isn't funny anymore. It doesn't do it. It's not eternally satisfying. You know, it was good, and there was an effect while it lasted, and it was a gift to be received from God, but it clearly wasn't ultimate. And Solomon took that as far as you could take it. I mean, he had comedians. He had people who worked for him to serve him, to, to make sure that he experienced the most of all of these pleasures. And his report from the world of laughter is it's just not enough. Now, by the way, as we look at some of the stuff that Solomon experienced here, some of the stuff that he tested to see if there was real life there was sinful stuff that we should never have in our lives. Some of what he tested was good stuff, but good stuff that makes a terrible God. Good stuff that should never be ultimate in our lives. So, for example, laughter is a good thing. It's a gift from God, and we should be thankful for it. And if you never laugh, if there is no laughter in your life, there's probably something wrong with your life. But laughter can't be ultimate. When we try to make it ultimate, when we try to make that the big deal, the thing that we live for, it never satisfies. And what we can do is we can take all these different pleasures, experiences, we can take even good gifts from God, we can put them on the throne of our lives, try to make them our God, try to make them satisfy us, try to make them save us in some way and complete us, and none of those things ever will. So sometimes some of the things that we have in our lives that we need to get rid of, we need to completely get rid of altogether. There are sinful things that we do that just need to go because they're sin and God says they're wrong. There are other things that are good things that we take and put in the wrong place in our lives, and those are things we need to put in the right place of our lives. So there are bad idols, and then there are idols that are bad because we put something there, but they're actually good things in and of themselves. Like, for example, you can make an idol out of family, and people do it all the time. 
where, where they worship their, their spouse and their kids above anything else. That's the first priority in every way. But repenting of that idol does not look like getting rid of your family. Repenting of that idol just means you love Jesus more, and he's the priority, and he, he comes above that. He sets the boundaries for your family. So, so the way we repent of that is by putting it in a different place in our lives. The same with money. Um, money is not a bad thing. Money is a blessing. It's a gift from God. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But money itself is a gift from God. But we often make it God. We make it ultimate. And the way that we repent of that is not by saying, I'm never going to touch money again. You can't live that way. It's by putting it in the right place in our lives. So I said all that just so that you know that as we go through everything that Solomon experienced here, I'm not going on a tirade against all of these things by themselves. Comedy is not bad. You know, building a house is not a bad thing. The things that, some of the things that Solomon did here aren't bad by themselves, but they make terrible gods. And some of them have their place in our lives and should be in our lives, but when we put them in the wrong place, it wrecks us, and pretty often it wrecks them. So Solomon tries comedy. It doesn't do it for him, so he moved on. Verse 3, he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So the first thing that he tries here after comedy is wine. And he, he describes two different ways that he tried it. One is the way of folly. And so this is the frat party use of wine. He sees these people who drink it, and they're getting drunk, and it looks like they're having a good time. So he says, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try that kind of folly. I'm going to go out and sinfully get drunk and experience all that wine has to offer there. And he reports back, and he says, you know, you get the thrills for the minute, and then they go away, and you're empty, and it doesn't do it for you. And then there's the wise way that he tries it out, which sounds like just a social drinking way. Um, a way that the Bible doesn't say is sin in every circumstance. In fact, the Bible says this in Psalm 104, verse 14. It's talking to God, and it says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. And so, so the Bible there has a good use for it, that it can be used in love. It can be used as you're sitting around having a great dinner with great friends and having a glass of wine. The Bible doesn't describe that as a sinful thing. And Solomon tries that way too. He tries it out. And again, he takes something that the Bible describes as a gift from God. And he just thinks that maybe that holds promise for me. Maybe just that social life where day after day, I'm having great parties and eating great food with great friends. And we're lingering long over a meal. As we do those things, that's where I'll finally find real meaning in life and the life worth living. And he comes back and he says, you know, that doesn't do it for me either. In fact, there's nothing that we can consume, nothing that we can put inside of ourselves that will save us, that'll make us different, that'll fundamentally change our hearts. And sometimes we believe that it is. We think that our problem is the stuff that we're putting in ourselves, that our biggest problem is the food that we eat. And some of us don't eat well, I know, but, but sometimes we think that if I just ate right in every way, if I just ate the right foods, drank the right drink, then I would be a fundamentally different person. But Solomon's report is that it really doesn't change fundamentally who you are. It, it doesn't heal you. It doesn't save you. And sometimes you believe just because you see your friends tweeting all their food and it's going up on Instagram all the time that you're thinking, well, well, that's where there's happiness. Because look at these people. They're eating that delicious food and they have this social life and they're all gathered around. They're having such a good time. I'm missing out on that. And if I had that, then I'd find real life. Solomon says, no, I tried it. Tried it with my heart still guiding me with wisdom. 
And even that wasn't enough. You say, okay, well, I'm not going to look for it there, but maybe I could look for real life and meaning in the American dream. And maybe I could get the big McMansion with the white picket fence. I could have all the stuff that we need. I could have the big finished basement, beautiful house, everything exactly like you would want it to be in your ultimate dream house. And I look around and it seems like the people who have that, they, they have the thing that I want. And so if I had that, I would be satisfied. But what ends up happening is we go down those trails, we recognize that they don't go anywhere. Um, now here's what happens. Pretty often we think, here's where the path to happiness is. You know, the path to happiness is the American dream. It's having the nice house. And so we go through our lives, we save, and then finally we get into that house, we have the nice house, and when we get in for a while, we recognize that it doesn't do it for us. So we redecorate constantly or put on the addition or landscape. We make the changes we think we need to make, and still we're not really satisfied. And so we look further down the trail, and we see that there are other people who have bigger houses and nicer houses, and as they have those things, maybe that'll be enough. So we keep going down that trail, and we keep going from bigger to bigger to bigger, better to better to better, every improvement, and we're painting again all the time. We just keep heading in that direction, thinking we're on the right trail, and the problem is that we haven't gone far enough down the trail yet. Well, what Solomon does is he goes down the trail all the way, and he comes back and reports to us what's there. I used to do a lot of backpacking trips with uh, teenagers. We used to go to the Black Forest in uh, Pennsylvania. And the last time I went, I got Lyme disease and almost died. So that was the last time. Um, maybe someday I'll get back on that horse. But we, we went out, and pretty often, if we were going, especially in the end of the summer, uh, a lot of the, the trails on the Susquehanna Trail System would be pretty grown over. They weren't uh, well-trampled trails in some of the areas. And so we would have a map and a compass, which I'm pretty useless with those things anyway. But we would have them, and we would be on a trail, and we'd say, I think this is it. But we'd have a pretty big group of teenagers with us, and some were in great shape and some definitely weren't. And we didn't want to to take people who were already struggling and waste a couple of hours by walking down the wrong trail, finding out it was the wrong trail, and having to double back and then find the right trail. So sometimes we would be at an intersection, we would sit down, and we would send one of the more athletic kids ahead. We'd say, leave your backpack here, go down this trail, quarter mile, and you should see, eventually, it, it wraps around this bend, or you'll see these landmarks, and then you can come back and let us know if we're on the right trail. And so we would send the kids, and they would run ahead, and they would come back, and they would either report, yeah, we're on the right trail, I saw all the landmarks, or they'd say, this really isn't a trail. It just kind of dead ends into the woods, and I lose the blazes on the tree. This can't be it, so that we don't go down that trail. Well, Solomon was that guy. He did that service for us. He ran ahead, he ran all the way down the trail. Everything we think that would make us happy, he had it in its extreme, and he came back to tell us that they were all dead ends. So we can waste our lives going down that trail. We can waste all the energy. We can waste all the money. We can waste our emotions going down those same trails. Or we can be wise and listen to the guy who went down the trail and recognize that what he had to say about it was absolutely true. He had more than we'll ever have. He had a more extreme version of everything we think we want to make us happy. And he came back and he said it didn't do it. And if we'll be wise, we can listen to him and not have to pursue all those same things. Look at verse 4. He says... I made great works. I built houses, plural, and planted vineyards for myself. If you read the Old Testament, you know when Solomon says, I made great works, that is an understatement. Um, This is the guy who built the temple. He spent seven years building the temple and built it into one of the most elaborate, expensive buildings possibly in the whole world at that time. So it was a sweet place, and he spent seven years on it. And then he went from there and spent 13 years building his house. So it's probably pretty nice. 
Cribs, Jerusalem. He, he was featured. Like this was, it was a nice place. It had everything that you think that if I had that in my house, that would be enough. And one time he went to a vineyard and he said, vineyards are nice. They're pretty. So he built himself a vineyard. He, he didn't hold back at all. And it doesn't say that he just built one house, but houses plural. So he had the main palace and then probably the summer house and the winter house and the hunting lodge. He built all the works. He had all the stuff that we think in our deluded American dream world will make us happy. He went all the way down the trail and he came back and he said to us, guys, it is a dead end. And you say, well, I'm not so much into like the interior of the house, but especially summertime. I want the garden. I want the grounds. I want the landscaping. I want the sites. Verse 5 I made myself gardens and parks. Not just like a window box planter with some marigolds in it. Parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. The guy likes gardening, so he plants a forest of trees and has water flowing into that garden to water those trees and to nourish them, and and he has fruit all over. One author said that he made the Garden of Eden without any forbidden fruits. He built just the best landscape, the most awesome garden you could ever imagine, and when he came back, he said, it's not enough. Uh, I have a family member who has this deck that I think is the greatest deck in the world. And it's, um, it's huge. It's probably 1,000 square feet. And part of it is roofed, and it has skylights and a ceiling fan. Uh, it's got a fridge. It's got outdoor furniture that's nicer than my indoor furniture. Um, it's got blinds that you can pull down in case there's a glare on the big TV that's also on the deck. Uh, the part that doesn't have a roof over it has the hot tub in it. And uh, a couple weeks ago when I was on vacation, we were out there, we were at his house, and I was sitting in the hot tub. It was one of the preseason games. The Bills were actually winning the game. Uh, turned the TV, facing the hot tub. I'm sitting there drinking a pop from the deck fridge, out on the deck, watching the Bills game from the hot tub. And there's that moment where you're thinking, I could be happy if this was my life. <laughs> if, I, if I had winning Bills, refreshments, hot tub, deck, I'm a happy guy. But Solomon had more than that, and he came back and said, listen, I built the whole Garden of Eden, and it didn't do it. It's, it's not enough. Eventually, it loses its effect. And you say, yeah, well, I understand why. I mean, you build that mansion, you build all those houses, you build the gardens, and the upkeep is crazy. So Solomon probably moved in, and he said, yeah, this house is nice, but man, now i got to dust, and I've got to mow, and the mowers back then were terrible. And so he, he thought... I, I've got to do all this maintenance work. I thought it would make me happy, but now I'm just going to work like crazy to maintain the whole thing. That's why it's like chasing after the wind. That's why I can't satisfy. It would satisfy, but the upkeep is terrible. He actually had that taken care of. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. So he had people working for him. In fact, he had between fifteen and 20,000 people working for him waiting on him hand and foot, doing everything that needed to be done. So he wasn't touching a lawnmower. He wasn't touching a broom. He wasn't dusting. There were people to do everything you could imagine that he was doing. This army of people was so big that in 1 Kings, it says every day to feed his army of servants, they had to kill 10 fatted oxen and 10 oxen, uh, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, plus some deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. So just to feed these people, they had to kill a zoo like every day to give them all the meat that they wanted. 
Um, so he had people waiting on him doing everything you could imagine. And so sometimes we think, you know, I would have peace. If we, if we could get a nanny that gave me two days off a week, I know that would be satisfying for me. And again, that wouldn't be a sin. But Solomon had more than a nanny. And he said it didn't do it. I think if we just had a housekeeper who could come in here even just one day a week and clean up and help me take the edge off all the work, again, not a sinful thing. Solomon had more than a housekeeper, and he came back and he said, there's really no joy there. You know, in addition, you look at these animals, and that's, um, that's a lot of really good meat. And as a guy, I mean, if I had the hot tub and the Bills game and the good weather and then meat, unlimited, like what else does a guy need? Like, if you've ever been to a spada over in the village gate, I mean, it's this restaurant where, like, a Brazilian steakhouse, they come out and they bring chunks of meat on a sword, and they saw it off and give you a chunk of meat, and then they go and they get a different chunk of meat. And they keep coming back with different chunks of meat on the sword and sawing chunks off, and they give you a two-hour time limit, but you can just sit there eating chunks of meat. And sometimes I think, okay, if I had servants, the hot tub, and someone bringing me chunks of meat all day, like, what else does a guy need? Like, that... That would be enough. That's where I'd be happy. And I wouldn't feel like there was any need in my heart that was still to be met. Solomon had all of it. He had far more. He went way down to the end of that trail. And he said, no, still. Like, I still have that same dissatisfaction. Then he tried the status symbols. Verse 7, he says, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. They didn't have cars, but the way that you talked about somebody having money is you talked about the size of their herds and flocks. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, you see it. When someone's blessed by God and they're wealthy, they're mentioning the size of their herds and flocks. So this is like the Old Testament equivalent of saying, that guy, he's made it. He drives a Bugatti. Like, he's got, he's got the status symbol. And Solomon came back. He said, yeah, I have the status symbol. The herds and the flocks, and they were bigger than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. And still it wasn't enough. And you say, well, I'm not after that, but I just want the security that having money would give me. I want to have the freedom and the options of having a ton of money because it seems like you know, all week long we're limiting ourselves by the amount of money we have. So we've got these boundaries on our lives because we just don't have enough. Uh, and if I had more and I could save more and feel more secure, then I'd be happy. If I just didn't have debt, I had some cash in the bank, I, w- I would have everything that I need. Verse 8, he says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Most of us as Christians, we would never say it, but we believe that money can save us. Like we think the reason I'm in a bad mood all the time is because of money. And so if I had some, I wouldn't be in a bad mood. I'd just be a delightful person all the time. I mean, I would be okay with millions of dollars. You'd never see me in a bad mood. You know, nothing could go wrong. I buy a new car, somebody keys it. It's okay, I'll just give it to somebody else, buy another one. I'm happy all the time if I have that. I saw a newspaper article this week um, it wasn't newspaper, it was online, but um, saying that uh, Tim Cook, the, the CEO of Apple, there's starting to be a little bit of talk that he could lose his job because they perceive that there's a lack of innovation at Apple. And, and they said that if he did lose his job, he would be left with only his $378 million compensation package as a comfort. And I hear that and I say, I'd be comfortable. Like, that'd be, <laughs> that'd be okay, that'd do it. I'd still be in a good mood. I could handle losing my job if the golden parachute is $378 million. And, and I'd be in a good mood about it. It's not a big deal. You don't need a job at that point. You don't need anything. You've got everything. Solomon had it, and he said, it didn't really change me. It didn't change who I am. And we know this because everybody who gets crazy money, we see how it ruins all of them. When, we, when people get the things that Solomon had, it doesn't make them better people. You know, money and fame didn't improve Hannah Montana. Money and fame makes people 
worse. It corrupts them. And Solomon went out and he tasted all of it. He experienced all of it. And he came back and he said, it doesn't do it. You say, well, I don't want that. But if I could just have entertainment. If I could just come home from work and there's a 90-inch screen there and I could watch TV for five hours a day, which a lot of people do, and just enjoy what I can get out of that TV, get entertained, have a great sound system so I'm surrounded by music and entertainment all the time, then I'd be happy. Listen to what Solomon did. He said, I got singers, both men and women. He didn't have a TV, but he had singers. He had people there to entertain him. So, I mean, think of your favorite band. You, really, you like them so much that they move in. And, and when you want to hear them sing a song, you ring a little bell and Mumford and & Sons comes out. And, and they're there. And they start singing and playing. You think, that'd be enough. I'm entertained now. I'm happy. This is great. This is, I'm, I'm in paradise. Solomon built that paradise. And he said, yeah, I had those. Still didn't do it. You say, okay, I wouldn't mention it in church, but honestly, what would make me happy would just be lots of sex. Did that. He says, and I had many concubines the delight of the children of man. And sometimes you can be tempted. You know, you're, you're married and things are dark and things are hard and you're struggling and it seems like the romance isn't there. It seems like the intimacy isn't there like it was. And there's that person that you know that's starting to tempt you. And the forbidden fruit out there, you think I would have like a fulfilled and complete feeling life if I just had one fling with that person or if I was able to build a relationship with that person, that would be enough. Then finally I'd feel like I wasn't missing out on life and like life wasn't passing me by. I'd have my fun. I'd have my pleasure. I'd have that relationship and it would make me a complete and fulfilled and satisfied person. Solomon had 300 concubines, 700 wives. He had all of the relationships, more relationships than you could ever have And he came back and said, even that couldn't satisfy this heart. So you don't have to sin against God and blow up your marriage and blow up your kids' lives to figure out that there's nothing good to be had out there, that there is no ultimate pleasure there, that it won't satisfy you anyway. You can listen to the wisdom of Solomon and follow him. Verse 9, here's his summary. He says, So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all my hands had, I, then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is great news. You don't have to waste the next two decades trying to figure out if there's anything out there because the guy who checked it all out came back and told you it's not. Now here's some some more good news. Your search for pleasure, your search for ultimate fulfillment, for ultimate happiness is God-given. We're all meant for that. And, and I want us to be a church of pleasure seekers. But the problem is not that people seek pleasure. The problem is where we seek it. If we look for pleasure, ultimate pleasure, ultimate satisfaction, just here in life under the sun, just in the material world, it'll destroy us. It'll never be enough for us. We'll never be happy. We'll never have it. It'll make us miserable. We'll end up old, jaded people who went after that thing, thinking that it offered some hope, and we either got that thing and realized it didn't give us that hope, or we never got that thing, so we spent our whole lives frustrated. We'll be miserable if we look for ultimate pleasure and satisfaction and joy just here under the sun. But as Christians, we believe that God is the source of pleasure and has called us to seek our ultimate pleasure, but to seek it in him. 
not to seek it under the sun. Listen to Psalm 1611. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So that desire for more, that desire for pleasure, that desire for for fulfillment, it was given to you by God. And it was given to you to be fulfilled in God. And so there's nothing wrong with running after happiness and running after joy. Everything we do is an act of going after happiness. I mean, even when you make sacrifices and you give up something that you wanted, you're doing that because you think the thing that you're getting in exchange will make you happier. You know, you're giving up some money because you're giving to the poor. Yeah, you wanted to do something with that money, but there's happiness that comes in giving to the poor. And that's a superior happiness to the happiness that you would have from just your money. So everything you do, you're doing because you want to be happy and you want to have joy, and that's not bad. Uh, Blaise Pascal said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some in going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. She says, some people go to war because they think it'll make them happy. I could be a hero. I could advance a right cause. I could fight bad guys. And that's where there's happiness. People who don't go to war don't go to war because they think it'll make them happy. I could live in peace and not have to to struggle and not have to fight, not have to be in the battle. But both are going after happiness. He says, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So it's inevitable that we run after happiness. We're all after it. But it's not inevitable that we look for it under the sun. We don't have to try to find it here in a material world. And we're warned by Solomon that we can waste our lives looking for it and we'll never find it there. If we look for our happiness and our joy in Christ, and we know that ultimate happiness comes when we see him face to face and we're fulfilled and completed and at that point we have everything that we need. If we know that's where ultimate joy and happiness is and we live for that then we actually will find fulfillment. We actually will find that joy. We'll find what we're after when we see Christ face to face and we'll have little glimpses and little tastes of it along the way. But if we look for it just here, we'll end up being miserable. If we look for our ultimate happiness and fulfillment in Christ, then that changes the role of everything else in our lives. It allows us to take the gifts of God and receive them with thanksgiving, but then also have them just in that right place in our lives and we don't try to make them God. For example, some of you, maybe if you're single, you're looking for a spouse to save you. You're feeling lonely, you're feeling insecure, and you just think, if I could get married, then that'd be enough. I would have this person who would complete me and fulfill me, and all my desires would be taken care of. I'd be nothing but happy once I got married. I know that would be enough. I know that would do that for me. If that's the expectation you put on a spouse, in time you'll crush them. Because you're asking them to be God for you. You're asking them to fulfill. You're asking them to give you something that only God can give and they just can't do it. And they'll always feel like they're on a treadmill, always running, always trying to please and then eventually they'll just quit and fall off and say, I can't do it, it'll never be enough because you expected them to be God. So when you make a spouse ultimate, you love that spouse pretty poorly. But if Jesus Christ is ultimate and a spouse is given as a gift from Jesus Christ, as a person to love and serve, to paint a picture of the love of Christ in the church, then that lowers the expectations because that person isn't supposed to complete you and fulfill you and and satisfy every dream you've ever had. That person's supposed to be the object of your love. And then if that person's in the right place in your life, you end up loving them even better. 
You end up serving them even better. You end up being a good spouse. And if you expect sex to satisfy, you can run after it and have it in all kinds of different forms and all kinds of different beds, and you'll always find that it brings misery. You'll always find that it doesn't satisfy. But if it can be received as a gift from God only to be received inside marriage and enjoyed inside marriage, then it can be enjoyed rightly and enjoyed with increasing intensity over time because you're using it in the place where God has put it to be. It's not ultimate. People try to make it God, and it makes a terrible God. If, if money is your God, it'll destroy you. It'll never feel like it's enough. If beauty is your God, you'll never feel beautiful enough. And then eventually, by the end, when, when you're falling apart and can't keep up with the beauty, you start to experience the wrath of that God. You know, a lot of people say, I, I don't want anything to do with Christianity because Jesus has wrath and, and hell and punishment for people who don't worship him. Well, everything that we make God has wrath. The difference is that Jesus has mercy for those who will turn to him in faith and worship him. All those other gods, they have wrath for those who worship them. If you worship beauty, eventually it destroys you. If you worship money, you'll never feel like it's enough. You'll always feel insecure and you'll always feel like you're on that treadmill running to try to get more. If you make anything God besides Jesus, it won't do what you're after and it will end up crushing you and pretty often you crush that God. But if Jesus is God, if Jesus is ultimate, you'll get glimpses of joy, glimpses of ultimate happiness, and a promise that one day what you're after, which is God-given, will be fulfilled. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has put eternity into our hearts. And if we try to fill that void, we try to fill that hole with anything out there, even good things, even gifts from God, it'll never be enough. But if we fill that with Jesus Christ That's where we find fulfillment and and where we find hope for the future. And when we go through this life, as we're filled with anxiety, as we lack joy, it's pretty often because we've made something else ultimate and we just feel frustrated that we don't have it or because we got it and it's not enough. But if Christ is ultimate and we seek our joy in him, then we can really find it. The problem isn't that we seek pleasure. The problem is that we seek it in such small things either in the gifts of God or sins that are not gifts from God. We look for pleasure there. We're not saying stop looking for pleasure. We're saying look for it only where it can be found. Um, C.S. Lewis, he said, men are half-hearted creatures. He says, we're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So the problem isn't that we seek pleasure. The problem is that we're just seeking it in the mud pies when we should be seeking it at the beach. We should be seeking it in Jesus Christ. That's where there's life. That's where there's joy. That's where there's hope. And if you look for it under the sun, it'll wreck you. So I would encourage you in wisdom to turn to Jesus, to believe in him, find your life and joy and peace and hope there because it really is there. And it never feels totally complete in this life. We get those glimpses. We have those moments of worship, those moments of ecstasy that are little tastes of what's to come. But there's coming a day when we see him and it'll be enough. Far more than a hot tub and some meat in the Bills game, the presence of Jesus Christ satisfied that, that eternal gap in our hearts. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Christians, just ask yourself the question, the way that you live right now, what do you live like would make you happy? What, what would make you happy? Is it getting into the right college, graduating, paying the bills, paying off the debt, getting the house, paying off the house, getting the next house, 
Is it social life? What's that thing that's ultimate that you know if you had it, it would be enough? If the answer to that, honestly, is anything but Jesus, then we need to repent. We need to turn from that. We need to confess that to him. We need to confess that at times we have made Jesus' gifts our God. At times we've made sins our God. So we confess all of that and we ask Jesus to be our God again. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, I want you to know that real ultimate joy is offered to you in him. You've got that eternal gap in your heart and the reason it feels like nothing in this world can ever fill it is because nothing in this world can ever fill it. It was meant to be fulfilled with God. And it's there to drive you to God. It's there to get you seeking a savior. It's there to get you crying out to Jesus. And the good news is that if you'll turn to Jesus in faith, he'll remove his wrath from you and he will give you joy. He'll give you pleasure. He'll give you life. He's the only God that can do that. Every other God pours wrath out on those who worship it. Those who worship Jesus and truly turn to him in faith, he takes away the wrath and gives you life. So if you're here and you recognize that you're sinful, you recognize that you've fallen short of God's glory, you recognize that you're on this quest that you just seem like you can never get to your destination no matter where you get, then turn to Jesus Christ. Believe that when he died on the cross, he took the wrath of God that you deserved. Believe that he died and was buried and rose again so that the Bible says whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And turn to him not as a treadmill that you have to get on to keep working and working to get God to like you, but turn to him and just receive the free gift of his cross by faith. You can cry out to him in whatever words you want and say, God, I know my sinfulness. I know I've fallen short. I know that I don't live up to your standards. I know I deserve your wrath. But Jesus, I trust in you. I trust that you died for me. I trust that you were buried and that you rose again. And so I turn from my sin and my unbelief I turn from treating your gifts like they're ultimate. And in Jesus, I turn to you as the only way of salvation and forgiveness and hope and as the only real future. And he promises that if that's a simple cry of faith, he'll respond to you. He says, of all those who come to me, I won't lose one. He'll receive you. And that doesn't mean that you go out of here just because you believe in Christ and it's just nothing but nonstop joy all the time. It means that you are promised nothing but nonstop joy in the future when you see him face to face and finally you will arrive and the quest will be complete, your heart will be fulfilled and you'll finally have it. If the trail you're on is Jesus, you're on the right trail. It does go to the destination that you're looking for. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it warns us about where not to waste our lives and calls us to real joy, real pleasure, and real ecstasy that can be found at your right hand. So, Lord, help us not to believe the lies of all the false gods, of all the things that hold out a promise of life and fulfillment and and peace and convenience. Lord, help us to find our peace in you, our joy in you, our hope in you, and help us to receive your gifts but have them in the right place in our lives, where they're not ultimate, where they're not our biggest deal. Free us, Lord, from any angst that comes from feeling like we don't have enough of your gifts because we don't have to have them. What we have to have is you. And we thank you that because of the cross, because of the gospel, we have you. You're enough. You satisfy. And so we we receive that. We rejoice in that. And Lord, help us to live like this is true. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.